Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Stuart Bateson and I spent nearly 34 years in policing. And I loved just about every minute. Okay, maybe not the last couple, but the good times far outweigh the bad. And when I think of those good times, the memories all involve incredible characters, some from inside the job and some out. And I hope through this podcast, we can explore together the stories of some remarkable guests and their journey with and through policing. This episode contains content that may be alarming and triggering for some listeners. Check the show notes for more details and take care. Our guest today has an amazing and might I say somewhat intimidating resume. A member of Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, including stints at the Rape and Homicide Squads and the Missing Persons Unit, but dedicating much of her career to investigating child abuse and sex offences. Over her career, our guest has played a vital role in some huge cases. For instance, the Askervale rapist, Christopher Clarence Hall, who terrorised the Askervale community in the early 90s and was eventually sentenced to 34 years for 16 rapes. Matthew Wales King, who in 2002 brutally murdered his mother and stepfather. The case became known as the Society Murders and was immortalised in a book and a movie. Then John Sharp, who in 2003 killed his pregnant wife and their 20-month-old daughter, Gracie, with a spear gun before disposing of their bodies in a tip. And this is just a small sample of the impressive body of work as a detective. But perhaps her post-policing career is even more impressive. Our guest has appeared on national television, in radio, print and social media, including several appearances on the gripping and highly popular podcast, Australian True Crime, with Mitchell Laurie and Emily Webb. Now a host of her own podcast, a mental health advocate and an in-demand keynote speaker. Wow. Retired Detective Senior Constable Narelle Fraser, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Stuart, I hear that and I think to myself, my goodness, who is this woman? Um, I do, I pinch myself. It's incredible, probably more so as you say my post policing career because I think I've said to you before I think a lot of police can talk about a lot of crime scenes that they've been to uh, but it's after what happened and where my life went it's amazing it is amazing and mm. it's, it, as I said it's quite impressive and and quite as I said intimidating because me doing my second podcast <laughs> and now speaking to someone who's done 150 I think in total uh, is really impressive. You joined uh, policing in 1987. Yep. Uh, I believe you're 27 years old. And I was. Age. Yep. Uh, what had you been doing pre-policing? I'd been a secretary. Uh, my mum was a secretary and I suppose I just grew up wanting to be a secretary and I loved secretarial work. Uh, I used to do, uh, well, I still do, Pittman shorthand. In fact, a lot of notes I used to take as a police person was in Pittman shorthand and that was something that really blew a lot of defence barristers away because they'd see my notes and, of course, it was like, my God, what does that mean? You know, you'd never ask to, to say what do those notes say. <laughs> I know the feeling a few defence barristers accused me of some sort of shorthand but it was just my terrible <laughs> handwriting. Yeah, so, but um, when I was a secretary, I, I loved being a secretary, but then I became this, uh, I got interested in counselling, and I don't know why, I think I've always been interested in how people feel and the psych behind what people do, and I became a lifeline counsellor, and that's what really catapulted me into um, policing, because with um, counselling on the on the telephone, sometimes something really bad would happen and I'd have to ring the police. And I always remember thinking, what a great job for... So here I am in a, in a, um, a telephone room. I can't do anything to help somebody on the end of the line. Mm. But the police could actually go there 
and the police could actually hold someone's hand. They can help them get a bed for the night. They can help talk them down from jumping off a building, for instance. So that's what I... That's why I thought, God, I'd love to be a policeman. Mm. I've said to you before, it's a sticky beak's paradise. <laughs> and I am the world's biggest sticky beak. Well, it's certainly a profession too that I think that you know, people that want to help others are attracted to. That's yeah. why so many, if not all of us, mm. um, joined the job. We mm. wanted to help people. Mm. Mm. Uh, and and you, you can, can't you? You can, mm. you can. Mm. When you, uh, when you joined, uh, you obviously first went to uniform. What was it like being a policewoman back in 1987? I loved it. It was socially, it was a bonus because I was one of the few police women. <laughs> but there was something I loved about, like you just said then, about helping people. So somebody would call us we'd go there and I could actually as I said I could get somebody a bed for the night I could get a woman into refuge help her kids I could help the old drunk down the road I could uh, take him back to the station sober him up um, I don't know give him a feed like you were really uh, well that's you are you're a first responder mm. and um, you know I saw I was able to do a lot of things that I felt really helped the community. And mind you, I never had seen a crook almost in my life. But boy, I loved catching crooks. I loved um, getting in that div van and, you know, going to a job, an armed rob or, mm. you know, in those days, it was, uh, they were lots of banks being held up. And oh, I just, it, it's just that... Um, it's adrenaline. Adrenaline, it's, yeah, it's, that's it's it. Real, um, and it's also about being there, being in, you know, in that. You're not, you're not oh. sitting on the sidelines. You're in it. No. And that's a that's a real thrill that yeah. I, I don't think I've ever been able to replicate. No, no. And and another thing I used to love was when you knew a crook had done something, and you needed the evidence, and you were looking for that one percenter that you you. You just needed that one little bit more to be able to go and arrest him. And that's what I loved about um, arresting pedophiles and sex offenders mm. is knocking on their door, knowing it doesn't matter what you say, you are under arrest and you are coming with me. Yeah, I have got you. Mm. Oh, God, I miss that. Yeah. But in 87, it was just... I'd never been... I didn't know a police person. I had never... Um, seen a, a real gun because I came from a family of three girls you know come from Edith Vale uh, in those days nothing happened in Edith Vale and it was a very very sheltered life I came from a really loving mum and dad uh, great sisters and to actually see that other side of the world was a real shock to me mm. oh, I had no idea that sort of stuff went on so to see that gun and to actually have to um, uh, to shoot it, and I remember at the, <laughs> I remember at the academy when we used to have to shoot. Um, I had to have uh, remedial lessons because you know how you'd get thirty shots and you had to get them into the target. Well, I got, for instance, twenty six in my target, and the bloke next to me got thirty four. So I was. <laughs> you were your, <laughs> his target. <laughs> so. I, so I had to have remedial <laughs> lessons. Anyway, I actually became really confident at being able to shoot. But just those sort of things, you know, I'd never helped mm. like to hold a gun. That is a really powerful, yeah, scary think, thing. I think I was the same. You know, I joined when I was 19. There was so much to learn. Mm. You know, every day there was something new, something new about life mm. that they were teaching you out on the streets mm. and something new in policing um, that you had to learn. Mm. Um, tell me about your first strip search. Oh, you know, I can say this now because the statute of limitations hasn't um, expired, but my victim has. So I'm at St Kilda. I, I'm remembering, I've come from Edithvale, know nothing about anything. They don't teach you how to strip search <laughs> at the academy. As you said, they teach you a lot of things, but not about strip searching anyway. So... I can always remember the first couple of div van shifts I did. You know, I'd go out, oh, God love him. Um, 
Richo, well, he was from St Kilda anyway. He'd been there forever, big bloke, you know, big teddy bear. And we're in my first van shift and uh, we're driving down St Kilda, down Grey Street, and he says, um, there's a crow, pull her over. Well, I didn't know what a crow was. But anyway, I sort of gathered he meant, you know, to call her over. So I wound down my window and I said, excuse me. And he says, wind up the window. So I wind up the window and he says, that's not how you do it. So he wound down the window and he said, hey, get over here. <laughs> anyway, so the first couple of shifts were a bit, um, a bit of a shock to the system. Also, prostitutes and drugs, I'd never seen anything like it. Anyway, so one night I'm working with this... Um, uh, it wasn't Richo, I can't remember who it was now. Anyway, we get a, a prostitute. Um, I shouldn't call them, I'm not allowed to use that word anymore. What's the new, sex worker. Sex worker. Yeah, got to be politically correct. Yes. Um, so uh, we get a sex worker and we have to take her back for a, a search. Anyway, so I didn't want to appear like I was being a bit naive and I didn't know what I was doing. So the... Uh, policeman goes are you right to search her I said yeah no worries so we go into this room like no curtains no nothing I think it was um anyway it doesn't matter but we go into the room uh and she's dressed appropriately for a sex worker <laughs> and I can remember saying uh, I didn't know what to do so I said um okay uh, get your gear off or something like that. So anyway, she takes off her bra, uh, you know, the top. So I do the, you know, I, I check it to make sure there's no needles in there or any drugs or anything. Uh, she takes off her, uh, oh, everything. So I, I check behind her ears because I'd heard somebody say that behind the ears, they would often put drugs behind the ears yeah. in the roof of their mouth. So I'm doing all this. And then we get to the um, the business end and she takes off her pants and she turns around so she's got nothing on and she bends over in front of me. And I wasn't sure what to do, so I put my gloves, I put my gloves on and I parted her cheeks. No, you didn't. <laughs> ever so lightly and ever so softly. And I remember she turned around and I didn't see anything. Well, there was nothing there. And, um, well, apart from the, the obvious. <laughs> and um, I remember she turned around and she was smiling. Anyway, the next night, I didn't know what I'd done, right? So the next night, I'm with a policewoman. And she says, we do the same thing. And she says, oh, um, have you done a strip search before? And I said, oh, last night I did, but I wasn't too sure. She said, come on, I'll show you. Well, with this one, she did all the stuff I did in the, um, uh, previous, but when it came to searching the business end and the girl turned around, <laughs> this policewoman actually said to her, part your cheeks. And I thought, That's oh, what my... I That's what I should have done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, oh dear story. me. Yeah. I got told to ask you about that story. Uh, Carla's over there shaking her head. <laughs> it's pretty unbelievable. Like I said, she died a number of years later because oh. she was a, um, a sex worker and yeah, she was yeah, a heroin so addict. And yeah. yeah, so I feel I can say that now. You had a great career as a detective. As I said in the introduction, had some really big, high-profile cases. But most of your career, um, you dedicated yourself to sex crimes and child exploitation. Yep. What, what drew you to that? I think maybe because I had had such um, a lovely uh, upbringing and when I worked at St Kilda, I saw the damage that sex offences did to people, that um, the lifelong effect that it has on people and most of the drug addicts and um, sex workers that I had dealings with had been abused as children or had um, been exposed to terrible uh, violence or cruelty and I think I just wanted to help as many people, uh, young people as I could mm. to stop them being exposed to that. Um, but also the sex offences it is a lifelong um, uh, burden that people have to carry. And if I could, you know, help one person not have to carry that burden, I, I just almost felt 
that was my forte. Mm. I felt I had the right personality, maybe the right understanding, and even the sex offenders. Like, I found that a real challenge. I didn't want to... Um, well, in those days, there was, you know, a fair bit of um, uh, a clip across the ears or whatever. I never, ever felt like doing that. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to do was I wanted to get into their, not into their mind, but I wanted to try and understand why, for instance, they would offend against a child. Nobody can understand that. But what I used to think was, like, why would somebody want to abuse a, a defenceless little child? And most of them had been... I'm not saying it's an excuse, but I wanted to get into their psyche and I wanted to learn about why they had done what they'd done. And most of them, a lot of them, had been abused as children. Mm. Yeah, it's a cycle, isn't it? So yeah. often. Yeah. So often. One of the things that I remember most about you as a, uh, as a detective... You had this incredible ability to connect with people, whether it was victims uh, or offenders. Mm. Um, and in my view, every great detective is able to do that. Did you, did you recognise you had this ability to connect with people? Oh, gee. I think I must have in a roundabout way, but it was pretty much... Um, what's the word? Um belted out of me, beaten out, beaten out of me when I first joined because it wasn't recognised. It was that um, soft, fluffy, touchy stuff that wasn't really part of policing when I first joined and it was seen, I think, as a negative and so I really um, suppressed a lot of that, um, I don't know, tenderness let's say, compassion, understanding, I suppressed a lot of that Mm. because I feel I was um, viewed as a bit soft Mm. and that wasn't a good thing in those, you know, in those initial years. But, But as I became more experienced and as I got to the squads, I think it was more... Um, what's not... not required... Well, I suppose it was required, but it was more accepted because that's how you got people to talk to you yes. and, and so trust you yeah and have, have the willingness to share their story whether they be a victim or, or an offender yeah yeah but everyone's got a story everyone's got a story yeah you I know agree. so I and I am interested in people's stories mm. and and I think it shows because people would talk to me mm. And so in the end, I started to think maybe this is a good thing, you know, about my um, compassion, say, and understanding, my softness, I suppose. (laughs) It's not something that you you, um, connect with policing is softness, is it? It's normally hardness, you know? Well, look, I think there's a a role for all of those things in policing. But I would often see people that had a a real ability to connect with people... Mm. And if that was the case, I would send them in for specific jobs. Yeah. Can you handle the victim? Yes. Can you talk to this offender because we need him to talk? Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. These are the sorts of things that I recognise in people's strengths, and I and I recognise that in you. Yeah. And even now, you can see how you connect um, with your audience in your podcasts. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a really important skill in policing, one that's often, as you say, overlooked. I, I don't know whether. They are. I'm sure they recognise it more now. Do you think? I hope they do. I hope so. I hope so. Mm. One of the things that I uh, think, though, that comes at a cost of that ability to connect, is that when you're genuine about it, when you have a genuine connection, yes. like you build it, you feel yes. it. Yes. Some of that sticks with you, whether you're hearing a victim story, yes, or you're hearing the story of an offender. Yeah. That often stays with you. Not necessarily, um, you know, it's something you can just wash off at the end of the day. No. Little bits of the... Is that, has that been your experience? Oh, definitely. You know, I can't get over the amount of people that have said that... Um, I always remember Tim Peck. 
I interviewed Tim, an, an ex, a, a former policeman who's now gone on to some amazing things. But Pecky, he said to me that he found the um, working with the emotive side of, say, the victims or the relatives that have been left behind in a murder, for instance, he found that so difficult to deal with. He would rather not deal with all that emotional stuff because that's what used to really get him. And I think looking back, that was my, a bit of a mistake maybe that I made is that, and it's just something I loved. I wanted to be there on the ground. I never wanted to be a sergeant or a, a senior sergeant because I felt that you don't deal with those, the people on the ground, with mm. the victims like you do. And I believe by that stage, you know, that I, that was my sort of forte, that was my strength. And I wasn't trying to hide it. Mm. Um, and it wasn't a weakness. But, um, oh, I've forgotten the question, Stuart. I got to, <laughs> what oh, was the question? My, my real curiosity about um, the, build, the people who can form that genuine connection, who can get that information that's so important to every prosecution... Mm. that it comes at a cost for them. Yes. It starts to build up over time. Yeah. Yes, you've made a connection with that victim, but it stays with you. Yeah. You know, I imagine you still have contact with some victims that you've dealt with over a number of years. Yes, I do. And it's funny, but that was really frowned upon. You know, if you had connection with, um, mm. you know, you were supposed to be able to do this job, um, literally sometimes hold a victim's hand, like somebody that's, say, I can remember a young woman who'd been raped by a, a father and his son. The father was elderly and the son was, say, 30. And to get her into the the witness box, I can remember actually holding her hand, um, comf- trying to get her out of bed because she was in the fetal position. And those sort of... Um, that sort of thing that stays with you. You you cannot leave a that is not a job. You know you can't leave that at the end of the day and go home and say okay on with the next one. Like no. it does. And no. sometimes some of those really affect you, mm. and you you put them aside. You think you are putting them aside, but you are not. No. <laughs> they're, they're starting to accumulate. Oh yes, they? they're starting to accumulate. But yep. in, in, in my experience, you know, some of those ex- where those face-to-face emotions and dealing mm. with victims and, mm. and even offenders uh, has had a bigger impact mm. than some of the blood and the gore that I've experienced. Oh, that, yes, definitely. Yeah. I would think that uh, the blood and the gore, I'm not saying I could handle easily, um, but I could handle that, I believe, better than I could the emotional side because that the emotional side you cannot uh, just turn off Mm. you know and when people have been I don't know horrendously abused or you know like some of the jobs I did with child abuse like the cruelty of little kids like that is something that you can never ever forget however I did believe that at the time I felt I could deal with it. And in mm. fact, I there, there were times in my career where there were some terrible jobs happening, uh, particularly, let's say, at Bendigo Socket. And I can remember most of my colleagues there had children, little kids. And I used to have this, oh, this... Re- Looking back, I think, what, was I kidding myself? But I would want to and try to take on a job that had kids so that my colleagues didn't have to, because I don't have kids. And so I thought, you know, I think, what was I thinking? (laughs) You know, but I'd take it on because I didn't want them going home. I'd just think, how distressing would that be? Like going to Sudi's, there is nothing sadder than a... Sudden infant death. Oh, a death of, you know, an innocent little kid dying in their sleep a little baby and I like at one stage there I think I went to three in say six weeks or something like that and oh, really that you never ever ever no. forget them no you don't and, and I think you know I was a little bit the same you 
over time you go, yeah, this is fine. I'm coping. Mm. You know, I, I did a good job there. I've helped mm. people mm. move on to the next one. But what I didn't realise is that it was starting to leave scars oh, yeah. that, that I had to address at some yeah. point. I look back and I, I think I ignored those scars. I think they were there, you know, like the effects of a job. But I also used to think, well, that's the job I've chosen. I love what I do. And also I think to myself, I saw it as a weakness to say to somebody, hmm, I didn't go too well with that job, you know? Yeah, and well, it's not something we admitted, <laughs> was it? <laughs> and you know what? I wish I would have. Yeah. And for those people out there listening, um, don't ignore the signs. You know your body better than anyone else. You know your mind. You know when you're not coping. Mm. And don't kid yourself because I did and I lost what I still consider to be the best career ever. Some of that pressure is even higher in high-profile cases that are in mm-hmm. the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just seems to build pressure on detectives and everyone oh, yeah. involved in the case. Because <laughs> everyone is watching yeah, everything everyone. you do. <laughs> One of those cases you're involved in was Maria Corp, who mm-hmm. was um, reported missing in February 2005, and yep. you were part of the missing persons crew that mm-hmm. were sent to investigate. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that case? It was about a man that didn't have the guts to say to his wife, I've met somebody else. It happens every day all over the world that people meet other people, they fall in love. But this man, Joe Corp, can I say he was a gutless prick? I think you can. Okay, thank you. He was a gutless prick. And so instead of going to his wife and saying, I've met someone else, he decided with his partner, his new partner, that he'd met on a swingers website, that uh, let's murder Maria so that the two of us can be together. He was absolutely the, um, uh, the mastermind. Driver. Correct, absolutely. But Tanya actually murdered Maria or strangled her. She thought she'd murdered her. But um, she was missing. Maria was missing for about four days. And how often does this happen? But, of course, Joe reported her missing, knowing that Tanya had been to the house that morning and strangled her and just left her in a car. Um, so we put out a, um, uh, a media release. If anyone sees this particular car... Can you um, advise the police? Well, myself and I can't remember who I was working with, but it was a Sunday morning at St Kilda Road in the in um, the St Kilda Road head office, and uh, we get a call from a, the Shrine Guard at um, at the Shrine. Funnily enough, and uh, he said, "Well, I think it was Crime Stoppers that rang us and said you've got a crime scene down at um, on." Dallas Brooks Drive, I think it was. They'd found the car. Yep, they'd found the car. And I can remember being... I mean, most police listening will know that smell when you th- you know somebody's dead. Anyway, within a, oh, I don't know, 70, 80 metres, you know, we could see all the condensation on the inside of the car. It was her car. Anyway, we knew that she was in there, but she wasn't actually... We couldn't see her, so we knew she was in the boot. And so the two of us raced down there. We saw that... And, of course, then we ring and everyone comes from everywhere, obviously. And uh, as in police, I mean, you know, our sergeant and all that sort of stuff. And we got the boot opened eventually and there she was. And um, for all intents and purposes, we thought she was dead. She was sort of in the fetal position in the boot. She'd been there for four days. She had been in the boot for four days in the hot February sun. Mm. Oh, boy, and she was, well, she was putrid. Um, and she was really dishevelled and somebody had to get in the boot to check that she was dead and just when that boot opened and just to see she was like a little mouse you know a frightened little mouse and um, I I had to actually um, climb into the boot to be able to sort of I, I almost like spooned her 
um, to try and find her, um, you know, if there was any signs of life. And I don't know how much you want me to go into this, but, you know, she had maggots in her, mm. coming out of her nose, in her ears, in her eyes. Like, she was clearly dead. And the poor, oh, and she, you know, the, the, oh, the smell. And I'll never forget that smell. I don't think I'll ever get over that smell. But I checked everything and she was dead. Mm. But then on a little, I don't know, a bit of a whim, I thought, oh, somehow I got to put my head near her chest and I could see her chest and it rose. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't believe it. And that's when I just yelled at the top of my voice, you know, she's alive, she's alive. So we eventually got her to hospital and um, she never, ever regained consciousness. But I can tell you at the, at the base of that boot, at that boot, when we opened the boot, there were people that, um, and these are seasoned detectives, there were people that threw up, there were people that fainted, and I can always remember years later, um, I saw a, um, a person that had been at the back of that boot, and he told me that, oh, maybe a week later, but he said that really finished him. And he left, not telling anyone why. Mm. It was just... It had just t- tipped it. him. Yep, tipped him over the edge. Yeah, I mm. don't think anyone can actually imagine what that would be like. That uh, you know, the mm. uh, you know, detectives who've been homicide would recognise the smell, mm. uh, of course. But um, the idea that she breathed in that circumstance uh, is just—it was one of the moment. most incredible. Oh, it gives me goosebumps yeah. thinking about it. Yeah. Um, uh, but it was one of the most incredible moments. There's a lot of incredible moments in yeah. policing, but yeah. that was one. I wanted to touch on that one because it really illustrates some of the things, the experiences that you've had over your career that just start to, you know, we talked about scars before, but it's just yeah. starting to add yeah. and add and add. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> just to finish off that story, Joe committed suicide. The he husband. did. Yeah, and on the day that uh, he committed suicide, he ended his life on the day of Maria's funeral. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so... And I know a lot of detectives were very, very affected by yes, that job. no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. All right, so we, you, you go back and you go to country. Uh, and oh, the best time of my <laughs> career. Oh, well, there was a lot of good times, but, oh, I love the country. Where, where did you go? Kyabram. Kyabram. This was before I went to Bendigo. So my husband and I, we used to go water skiing a long time ago. (laughs) I can't even get up on two skis now, let alone one. But we used to go water skiing up on the Murray. And my husband saw this beautiful place right on the campus. Well, actually, it wasn't beautiful at the time. It was a bit of a dump. But it was that area that we loved and the, the... the place was just right on the Campaspe. Until the floods come along, it's yes. fantastic. We'll touch on the floods yeah. later. <laughs> um, but, and he wanted, he loved this place. And, and I thought, you know, I'd love to try country policing. Let's, let's do it, you know. And um, it took me, you know, I was a bit of an anchor for him. It took a bit of um, um, nagging, I would have to say, from my husband. But anyway, eventually we moved up there and I went to Kyabram. And it was just a different type of policing. Mm. I loved Kyabram. I just loved being in a little community where people would know you and they'd come and say, oh, I'd like to speak to um, Policewoman Narelle, please, you know, and they'd come to me about all sorts of different things. But a lot of it was, I don't know, maybe women and men that had... I don't know, again, my personality or my Mm. compassion must have shone through because they wanted to speak to me about things that they would never tell anybody else. And it was an unbelievable honour to Mm. be able, number one, for them to ask for me, but then for me, and I could do something. Incredibly rewarding too. Yeah, it was. Very, yeah. 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 And you don't get that with with city policing because it's somebody different every, every day. Time. They don't know to That's ask right. for yeah. Fraser. Yeah, yeah, You didn't last too long there, though, did you? You found your back itself back investigating sex yeah. offences at Bendigo Socket, as yeah. it was then? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and um, again, 
there's I loved country policing, but also there's just something about investigating sex offences. You number one is you can help the victim an enormous amount. But I also loved that, as I said to you before, that knocking on the door when some pig has been so cruel. And generally I'd have to say, I don't, um, at Kyabram, I may have in, uh, investigated one woman who offended against uh, children, but 99% of the people that I investigated were men. And, you know, the work that you've done over such a long period of time started to make an impact on your life. Yeah. Uh, there was one particular incident you spoke of uh, with child pornography yep. that really had an impact. Yeah, it did. And um, you'll notice every now and then I'll forget where I am. That happens quite a bit. With um, I was diagnosed with PTSD, but just going back a little bit, backtracking, yes, I did. Um, in 2012, I did a warrant on a pedophile and when we went to the house, I actually thought we had the wrong person and I thought, how could we get this so wrong? You know, there's um, mum and dad, the two sons, they're adults. One of the sons is there with his, uh, his fiancée. They've just bought a house. They're getting married in a couple of months and I'm thinking, how could I get this so wrong? And with the crime scene boys, with the um, computer crime, uh, we said, look, we just have a look at the at your computer and you know we'll be out of here sort of well we looked on that computer and I didn't have the wrong house it was probably not probably it was the worst child abuse material I have ever seen in my life and I ever want to uh in in fact that has been um confirmed by somebody that I've just been in contact with recently who was with computer crime at the time and he said he'd been all over the world with computer crime and child abuse material and he said that is the worst he had ever seen mm-hmm. but what was required was for me and the police listening will understand that in those days we had to view all of the videos that how uh, many uh, images were there 1700 yeah, like but they that. weren't images they were videos so i watched 1700 of them and i can remember there was uh, at, at computer crime in um, Melbourne and people do everything to try and help you you know they've got the signs up if you're feeling a bit um, anxious or stressed or whatever you know take a break and the sergeant had come in and he'd say you know the sergeant from computer crime they did everything they could right but of course you didn't tell anybody that how it was affecting you but I didn't actually know how it was affecting me until I can't remember what particular one of the 1700, but I had a reaction I'd never had before and it was uncontrollable and I <gasps> and I put my hand over my mouth and I thought I was going to be sick. So I went outside, uh, I thought oh, I need a bit of fresh air and a cup of coffee and I came back and somehow I got through that day. I didn't sleep that night. I had to go again the next day to finish them off. But I had a reaction. That reaction really threw me because I just didn't understand. Like, fancy, this is how obvious it was, but it wasn't obvious to me or I was fighting it, thinking, what is going on? (laughs) But if we don't do it, like somebody's got to, don't they? Yeah, and I think sometimes we don't understand uh, the effect of stress no. Uh, and that kind of trauma that's having on our bodies, um, no. we don't recognise it. No. Uh, and it was only about uh, two or three days later I had a committal. So I go back to work, everything's, you know, okay. Oh, well, on with the next one. <laughs> and I had a committal a couple of days later. And I can remember being in the court in the committal. And I remember. Uh, I was behind the victim, she's giving her evidence and she's really distressed. And I remember thinking to myself, pardon me, this is bullshit. She's being raped all over again and I am responsible. I have got her into that witness box. And the next thing I remember is being over at a coffee shop across the road, having a coffee 
And the court staff came over and said, Narelle, what are you doing here? The magistrate's looking for you, the OPP, the victim, the witnesses. And I can remember laughing at, oh, I've just got a bit on, sorry, I just had to get my head around a few things. And they let, I said, I'll be over straight away. But you had no idea how no. you got there? No, no idea. I found out later that it was an amnesia event. So what had happened is that um, my um, psychologist described it as like um, when you join at the academy, your bottle, you've got a pretty empty bottle, but every job you go to, as we've been talking about, where it affects you only a little bit, but it's represented by a drip of water in that mm. bottle. And what happened at that court case was my bottle just completely overflowed. And what I found out was that it was an amnesia event. So my body, my mind had just shut down. Yes. And I remember going, I couldn't to survive. work. Correct. That's what, they, that's what your body does Correct. to survive. And I can remember going back to the court and I'm thinking, why am I over in the coffee shop when everyone, like, this is my committal. Mm. And I can remember the prosecutor said to me, oh, God, she was angry. And she said to me, don't you ever. Do that to me again. Mm. She and wouldn't I, have understood either. Though, she didn't. She contacted me years later when she heard one of my podcasts talking about this, and she apologised. She said she had no idea, but neither did I. Mm. You you received a um, uh, what you know to many I would imagine was a, a clear uh, diagnosis on mm -hmm. for PTSD. Clear to everyone else but me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what that's where last ones to recognise, yeah. okay? I, I'm, I'm sure that's yeah. in most cases. Yeah. But you got the diagnosis. Um, how long you, you undertook some treatment? How did that go for you? How did that come about? I hung on, I think, for about four months, thinking I can get through this. I'm just a bit stressed. I'm just, you know, I, I need a bit of a break, and it didn't get better. So I went to see the doctor. He said, you've got PTSD. And hand on my heart, I said to him, what is that? I had no idea. Mm. And when he explained what PTSD was, absolutely. You know, he'd go through it and then I'd go tick in my mind. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, so he sent me to a, a psychologist and that was a game changer for me. He had actually done a PhD in PTSD so the doctor knew exactly. Your GP. Yep, yep. Oh, so he knew exactly what it was. But mm. of course, I thought he didn't know what he was talking yeah. about. And the psychologist confirmed it. But that was a game changer. There was a couple of game changes for me. The psychologist, because we did a lot of work with, um, I trusted her, like I trusted her with my life. Mm. She told me, it was pretty frightening actually, she said to me that that amnesia event was uh, the next step would have been hospital mm. and that frightened the life out of me. Mm. And I trusted her so we tried a whole lot of different things. We tried EMDR, eye movement desensitisation and reprogramming and look, something worked. I don't know whether it was the mindfulness, the meditation, the exercise... The um, removal from the stressful, abs yes, you know the stresses, yes. of policing, and that was the hardest part. It took me eighteen months really to accept that I actually had a mental mm. health diagnosis because it was just something that was so humiliating, so uh, degrading, so embarrassing. Um, but also, I, as part of my treatment under work cover. I can say a lot of positive things about a lot of things, but work cover is not one of them. Uh, there was the, there was a, the only one. <laughs> there was a, a couple. Few. There was a couple of things that they did which really helped me. But I went to the Austin on um, as an outpatient for uh, on the PTSD program, and that is where I accepted and I realised how bloody sick I was. I was really really sick on you for tackling it can i just say from uh from an outsider looking in at your career um, it is not surprising that you ended up with ptsd because you had that uh, ability to connect and feel that's what made you a great detective i feel very life. uncomfortable with you saying that i i know um i wasn't this is going to sound uh, i know what i'm good at 
but I wasn't a great detective in, you know, um, I, I think my forte, my um, specialty, let's say, was with the emotional intelligence side of things. Connecting with people. Yes, yeah. Which, which, is, a, which is a very important skill yes. for a detective. Yes, yeah. So part of, part of your uh, treatment and part of your getting yourself back on your feet, I believe you pushed yourself into doing some public spe- uh, speaking with Toastmasters. Yeah, I did. Um, I felt I I just felt I had the stories. I wanted to share with people what a great job policing is, and to take my advice and not to pretend that you're not affected, let's say, and to look after yourself. And and I, I thought I've got all the, the, like I've got the stories, I felt I had the right sort of personality, you know, I could uh, touch a, a lot of sadness with a bit of humour, mm. which I think is important. It's not all doom and gloom, right? So I thought when I was sick, I've got I've got, why don't I do something about it? Because I could, just in case you hadn't noticed, I could talk the leg off a chair. However, not in a a public sense, like anything more than, say, I don't know, four or five people, I would just go to water. And I didn't like being like that because I wanted Mm -hmm. to talk to people and share my experiences, so I did. I went to Toastmasters and the first speech I ever made was for five minutes. And I was nearly sick with stress, you know, about, oh, God, what am I going to say? I'm going to fluff my lines, you know, I'm going <laughs> to... But anyway, afterwards, the man that runs the Bendigo Toastmasters, he said to me, you know what, Narelle? You're pretty good at this. Well, he... I don't know if he actually <laughs> said that, but he said I seem to have the, the right attributes and it was worth uh, following up on, so... Anyway, it unleashed a beast. It did indeed. <laughs> I mean, we can't uh, we can't finish without mentioning uh, NFI Narelle Fraser interviews. I love the acronym, by the way. Thank NFI. you, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, that that is going great, guns. How, how many episodes? I've done about a hundred and fifty now, but Stu, it never that was never meant to happen. It I became this accidental mental health advocate. And it's not something I ever had thought of, but it's just, you know, you go down these roads sometimes, you go off on these tangents and just really magical things happen. And it did. It, You know, I got a gig like Michelle Laurie said to me, you know, would you like to come on and tell us a bit about your stories? I did. And from there it progressed to the point where she said, Narelle, I think you should think about doing your yeah. own. And I'd always wanted to use NFI. Uh <laughs> And I had uh, friends that say, you can't use that. And I thought, you watch me. <laughs> so then I thought, Narelle Fraser interviews. So, yeah, but – and what I um, – I feel really proud of the fact that I am exposing the public to what it is like to be a police person. That's – a lot of my guests are police, but also they're victims, mm. uh, they're psychiatrists, they're paramedics, but it's about exploring the human side and impact of crime. And yeah. I feel like, like, isn't this amazing? At 62, I have this newfound career. Yeah, you do great at it too. And you've also got some live shows with uh, Black Salmon yeah. events. Yeah, yeah, How's I do. That going? Yeah, really good. Um, again, I do pinch myself when I think to myself, I don't know, let's say 250 people have paid money to hear me. Mm. And like my friends say, I'm not bloody paying for you, all we have to do is listen to you all day. But people actually pay money. But I think it's because I share, you know, you've got to be very careful about how much personal stuff you share, but I'm pretty open about my mental health. And I think what people like is that I talk honestly about how crimes affect yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. And, and give the human element mm. to what is a very human mm. thing to do. Mm. Um, I used to be ashamed do. of it, but I'm not yeah, anymore. Yeah. 
Lastly, I just want to, I, I think it'd be amiss not to, you, you've been affected by the floods too terribly. Yes, terribly. Terribly. Yes, uh, you know, on the, on the um, what's the word, um, on the face of it, yes, you say, yeah, I've been affected, and nearly every time somebody starts to dig down a bit, the tears come. Mm. So you think you're doing all right, but you the, lost your house. Yes, yeah, we have lost. Um, at, we have a mezzanine floor. Uh, we did that four years ago, and it was just perfect. Mm. And the floods came, and we we live on the Campaspe, and it's a beautiful outlook. Uh, but there are risks. Well, we never. This is a once in a hundred year flood. But yes, we've been displaced. Um, we were evacuated. We lived in a motel for three months. We've just got a rental in Achuca, but our house ha- is decimated. We lost everything. Mm. Um, you know, my husband shared all his tools, like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. But I've got to put in a plug here for Apia. My husband qualifies for APIA, not me. (laughs) (laughs) Seniors (laughs) insurance. But, um, yeah, but um, they have been fantastic. Fantastic. So you will rebuild? Yes, we will. Yeah, Yeah. we're in the throes of it now. We'll be out for 12 months, they said. But we feel very fortunate. There's a lot of other people in Rochi that aren't. But it's devastating. Yeah. Well, Narelle, it's been great talking to you. I think we could have uh, gone on for another couple of hours. There's so much more I want to talk to you about. Yeah. Um, but thank you, uh, not only for coming on the podcast, but also for your career. Um, you know, you did such terrific work for Victoria Police, the community, particularly victims. Hmm. Uh, I hope you look back and you realise the impact you've had on individuals uh, Mm. and communities. So Mm. thank you for your service. Congratulations on your career (laughs) post-policing. It is amazing and I can't uh, can't see, I can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks, Stuart. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Narelle. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with others or leave us a rating and a review. Thanks again and see you next time.